0: Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. Thanks for joining us again this week as we discuss what's new in Oklahoma politics. Nay, what's new in Oklahoma government, right? It's not just politics. It's really what's happening in government. Joining me today as always is Bailey Perkins. Hello, Bailey.
1: Hello, Andy. Hey, listeners. I hope that you can hear me better and the sound quality is better from me because thanks to Andy, I have a fancy podcast microphone, so <laughs> I've upgraded in the let's pod this world. So
0: <laughs> yeah, it sounds better so far. I much, uh, you know, I've got copious amounts of electronics sitting around and it's nice to be able to put them to use. Uh, also joining us, of course, is Scott Nelson. Hello, sir. What is up? Scott, you weren't with us last week. It's nice to have you back.
2: Thanks, man. I'm glad to be here. It is always Always sad day for me when I'm not on the show, so it's a highlight of my week, so glad I'm back this week.
0: Well, I think listeners know that you are a, a work in healthcare as a physician, and so we appreciate your service to keeping Oklahoma safe. And maybe that's a good place to start this week. We haven't really talked about COVID for the last several episodes because there's a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. Numbers are going down. Case numbers are going down and vaccine numbers are going up. And these are both good things. Scott, how are you feeling about the COVID pandemic since you deal with it on the front lines?
2: Yeah, man, I think there's no question that things are getting better. Hospitalizations are down. Um, I think that it it looks like kind of the precipitous decline that we had been seeing stopped roughly a week ago. I think things are still on 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 the downtrend, but the rate of change is a little bit slower than it had been. Um, you know, I think we're <clears throat> we're in a much better spot than we were. I think it is important to note that our current numbers kind of reflect where we were last fall, like late last summer, early, early in the last fall at a time when none of us would have said that we had things under control, right? Like, if you listen to this show in September, we were like, uh, this is not good, this is not good. Well, that's kind of back where we are now, um, you know? So it's, so we're, we're back to this kind of, this, this more consistent level of disease activity that is much lower than it has been, but is still way too high. You know i think um oklahoma is doing a really good job in terms of our vaccine distribution and administration we're ahead of lots of other states uh you know our neighbor to the south uh the you know texas likes to say that they're used to be their own independent country um the way that they're going down there we might wish they were their own independent country um so we could you know their 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 covid situation is is not good and it looks like it's probably gonna get worse with some of the changes that they've had this week, uh, they're really struggling with vaccines, uh, partially due to the, to the big winter storm we had, but also they're, just, they're, you know, they're a big state, a lot of people. So we're doing well here on the vaccine front. Um, Oklahoma City, the city council voted this week to extend our mask mandate for a further six weeks. Um, I, I, I think that that may be the last one, but we'll see what happens. Um, who knows where, what the state of the disease will be six weeks from now. Um, my big concern at this point are the variants, right? And there's been a lot of talk about like, there's a variant from South Africa. There's a variant from the UK. Uh, there's a variant from Brazil. There's a couple more unique variants that are similar to those that have showed up in New York. Um, that tells us that there's a lot of pressure on the virus to try and, uh, to mutate and to develop mutations that allow it to kind of gain a foothold. So what that, that means is that right now, now is not the time. To be letting up on our mitigation measures, this is the time to put your foot on the gas pedal. Right, we are in a race against time, and every person who is walking around with a COVID infection um, is 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 the petri dish from which the next mutant that's more deadly, that's more transmissible, or that is uh, that that has a vaccine escape mutation can can come from anybody. Right, and so um, while I think there is reason for optimism. Um, even in the face of the new variants, we really have to be cautious. So continue to wear your masks, particularly if you're inside, continue to kind of maintain distance, right? Like we went out to eat on a patio this week. I'm still not going out to eat inside restaurants. I think if, uh, especially if you're vaccinated outside on the patio is probably a safe option. You know, I think if you can get together with people who have been fully vaccinated, I think that's a safe option. Um, like, we we can as you said, Andy, like there is there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but but we're not there yet. We're not we're not out of the tunnel. Um and if we want to see that light get bigger and not smaller, we have to stay really vigilant.
1: And Scott, would you say that the upside, if there is an upside to the ice storm, is that it kept people away from each other. So do you think that those several days that we all were stuck at home may have contributed to um, a decline in COVID cases around this time?
2: I think that's really, I mean, I think that's definitely possible. I think there's a lot of reasons to believe that that's possible. I don't know that I've seen data that would like link that. Like I haven't seen like, you know, kind of a, a, a timeline with the, the weather and the temperature change juxtaposed against the caseloads. And, you know, you'd probably see that now-ish, right? The way that the virus uh, uh, incubates, but I think that's certainly, that's possible, no doubt.
0: It, I think I sent this to you the day, Scott. It reminds me of a number of football games that I've watched on TV where some receiver or a running back is run into the end zone and he's home free. And then he starts celebrating just a few yards too soon, right? Yeah. I can think yeah. of a game where a receiver was running in and held the ball down by his side and like flicked it to let it go, but he flicked it just before the end zone. And thus, yeah. the touchdown did not count, right? Or they get tackled yeah. or whatever. Let's not be
2: that guy. I mean, we can't we,
1: afford to lose this game. No, that's right. We,
2: we need to we need to not snatch victory uh, from the jaws of whatever you, I'm saying. You know what I mean? We need to not snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, right? That's what it is.
1: Well, because this translates to life or death. And yeah. so if we want... More people to survive COVID or not catch COVID at all, then we have to continue doing our part. And just because a government chooses to implement a mandate or not doesn't mean that we don't have that responsibility to continue what we know will help reduce the spread. And as Scott noted, uh, municipalities still have the ability to make those decisions of, of maintaining mask mandates and other protocols that are necessary for public health. And so be sure to have conversations with your local leaders as well to continue pushing them to stay vigilant so that our communities can be safer and we can prevent unnecessary death.
0: E- even the city of Broken Arrow, there's we- council passed, a uh, not a mandate, but a strong encouragement for their citizens to wear masks. And I was like, man, well, it's That's a- progress. Better late than never, right? We well, come on, Broken Arrow, go ahead.
2: And I would also encourage folks. You know, you may be wondering, well, um, if if states like Texas and Mississippi are ending their mask mandates, uh, Carly Atchison, who is, uh, the, is she? Is she director of comms for Governor Stitt, or is she
0: works in the she, comms
2: department? She, she works in comms for uh, communications for Governor Stitt. She has been uh, feverishly, furiously tweeting this week about how uh, Oklahoma has done so well without a mask mandate and how our death rates specifically are so much lower in all these states with mask mandates. Important to know that another change that happened this week is that the Oklahoma Health Department will now start reporting coronavirus deaths in a way that is much uh, more similar to what the CDC uses rather than our own reporting method, um, which means that when when you look at coronavirus deaths, they jumped dramatically in Oklahoma this week and they actually exceed all of these other states that had mask mandates. So one, uh, be careful of what data you're looking at when you're trying to make decisions about um, what is and isn't safe. Um, I will tell you again, as you know, as a doctor, as a person, um, as a doctor and a person who's had both of my shots, um, I will still be wearing a mask everywhere that I go.
1: And the reason Governor Stitt's person is talking about this is because there was a um, op-ed produced in the Oklahoman, I believe it was in the Oklahoman, uh, by the governor, praising Governor Abbott in Texas for making that decision to end the mask mandate in the state of Texas. And he was bragging about, you know, how Oklahoma has been open for business since June of 2020 and never had one. Uh, one of the lines that was quoted in the article was, despite constant criticism from the media and the left, I never once entertained a mask mandate here in Oklahoma. I always trusted Oklahomans to do the right thing and keep each other safe. And they have. As a That's person, yeah, as a person who lost one of their loved ones, my grandfather, we talked about it a few podcasts ago to coronavirus at a VA center in Lawton, that line hurt a little bit because if we would have taken certain precautions sooner and done things a little differently, um, maybe 6,000 deaths in the state could have been prevented, right? Um, Maybe my grandfather could possibly still be here with us, you know, as the pandemic and conditions begin to improve, and so I'm not sure of how uh, how that statement aligns with also the number of people we continue to lose every day to the virus.
0: Yeah, so the op-ed was actually Oklahoma carried a story about it, but his op-ed was actually in the Daily Caller, which I guess is a conservative, you know, news outlet. So he's speaking the language of the natives of that community, right? Like know. You know, and-
2: yeah, the, da- the Daily Caller was founded by Tucker Carlson, if that tells you anything. That's what Tucker Carlson oh, did before. Okay. So that was his, that was that was Tucker's website before uh, he yeah. went over to Fox and became Tucker Carlson. Right. And that's, um, so anyway, There's sorry, I keep going. Is he the one with a
0: bow tie? Does he wear a bow tie?
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> bow tie is a bad name.
0: Scott you mentioned uh, about Texas claiming to be its own country it was and in fact governor Abbott delivered the mask repeal thing on Texas independence day the the on March 2nd which is the day that Texas of course uh, he did you know uh, got their independence declared their independence from Mexico way back and
1: Texas is the only state that can fly their flag equal to the US flag because it was once its own country.
0: That's right. So. that's right. It, um, later this month will be the anniversary of the of
2: the Alamo if you want to talk about that here in a few months. So, <laughs> so um, it, is, it is just it's, it's infuriating when you read that op ed by the governor like he says one, he's like, I agree with Governor Abbott that mass mandates don't work. That's why Oklahoma has been open since June. like that was the that was the title of his article. Um, but like one It ignores the the data About hospitalizations and deaths Two um, it ignores the fact that our largest metro, Our two largest metropolitan areas Have had mask mandates in place For several months um, And you can see that in the data Why like When cases went down in the metropolitan areas When they had mask mandates And when cases went up in rural areas That didn't have mask, mask mandates And then three he has a line in there About how like I trust Oklahomans Not the government And it's like you are the government. Like, there's <laughs> one person that could make this decision, and it was you. So that you was my tr-
1: very thought, Scott. You, you don't trust yourself? Well, you don't, want, well, like, you don't you, want Oklahomans to trust you. Like, yeah. we elected or you to be the government.
2: You don't want the responsibility. And I'll just, I'll just say, you don't want the responsibility because when you run for president in 2024, you want to say that Oklahoma got through uh, coronavirus, and you you were one of the few governors that never imposed a mask mandate. Like that's what this is about, right? Like, let's like, just card, cards on the table. Governor Stitt has been wanting to run for president since he won his governor's race, and the refusal to implement a mask mandate was a a about positioning himself for that talking point in a Republican primary, right. in my opinion. Well, because
0: <laughs> didn't he say something like at his prayer breakfast right after he was inaugurated that he felt called yeah. to for president? So, like, yeah. this is not a secret. So here's the thing that I bump on, and I this morning I spoke to some uh, journalism students at UCO uh, in a media ethics class, and I said this to them, and it's it's been on my mind all day. I I want to agree with the governor's sentiment that Oklahomans will do the right thing, right? And because I want to believe that in our world, in our society, we will take care of each other,
1: and we do. I mean, we have
0: thousands of examples all around us, right? The
1: Oklahoma standard. Yeah.
0: Right. When it comes
1: to natural disasters or after the facts of, of people coming together.
0: Right. We, and, and even in the midst of stuff, like many, many people have banded together to do very good things to help their fellow, you know, neighbor, right. In Oklahoma and otherwise. However, we also have a, what feels like a growing number of examples of us just thoroughly hosing our neighbor in order to get ahead, right? Like, and I had a conversation with- Or just
1: under principle, right? Just because it's my right- Right. To not wear a mask or take precautions. Like it's, it's somehow preventing your ability to make choice by making the choice that keeps everyone around you safe.
0: Yeah, right. Well, and it's like, you know, we often talk about Americans' sense of rugged individualism. And i it's almost like it has become this, like, caustic destructive force in some ways, right? Where it becomes selfishness and narcissism over a sense of patriotic duty to help one another, right? Like that we are all Americans and are all Oklahomans and we should band together to fight this disease. Instead, it's like I don't want to wear a mask. And so I'm not going to. And you can't
1: tell me what to. the government can't tell me what to do,
0: the government or anybody else, right? So people will argue that it's up to private individuals. And then I have friends that own businesses that get in verbal altercations with potential customers all the time who don't want to follow the rules of that business. And it's like, you got to wear pants, you got to wear a mask, just do it like it's not not big of a deal. And so it is difficult, right? I think for all of us to live in this world where we see acts of compassion and kindness side by side with acts of selfishness and destruction.
1: I'm glad that you raised that, Andy, because that makes that Oklahoma standard concept in conflict, right? What does it actually mean when it's time for Oklahomans to do the right thing for one another?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, and this is, now we're getting into like a deep philosophical conversation, but I think this is a, this is still true, right? Like we are all um, walking contradictions in some forms and fashions, right? Like I care about the environment, but I drive a car that uses gasoline, right? Like those like little things like that um, are difficult. Um, I don't recycle every last piece of paper. I may feel guilty about it, but I just don't you know, they don't all make it in that bin or whatever. And uh, I still eat meat, which I know is worse for the environment than eating more plant-based things or, you know, whatever. And so how we reconcile these two truths about ourselves as individuals and ourselves as Oklahomans, I think is, is a, a core narrative or a core thing that will shape the narrative of our state as we move through and reflect on this period in our history.
1: Well, I think one piece that makes me concerned is that we treat certain things as inevitable. Mm. So, in the context of the governor celebrating not instituting a mask mandate and opening up the state for business, and I say that in quotes, that the 6,000 people who have died from COVID or the hundreds of thousands who have caught it and it has disrupted their lives. Like it's almost like those things are just a part of living or just the sacrifice that has to be done in order to stay true to this principle of freedom and liberty and prioritizing the economy over the health of the people. And so I think we're seeing that even in a number of ways of like, um, well, across the country, I mean, we're, we're seeing people talk about the pandemic through that lens. I, I believe it was in Texas where um, a mayor mentioned something on the lines of like, basically, that's the sacrifice people have to make to keep the economy open or, or something along those lines that says, like, do, do we actually care about our neighbors when it comes to deciding how we move forward and protect one another?
0: So speaking of Governor Stitt, he had a couple of new appointments. I don't remember if that was this week or last week, but I don't think we talked about it last week if it was. So he appointed two women um, to different positions in his cabinet, one of which is a new position, right? Something to do with the budget.
1: It's like regulatory and something, but it it it's the appointment of uh, now Secretary Susan Winchester, um, who was a former lawmaker and I believe um a president pro tem of the senate I believe
0: mm, okay and then um the other one was Shelly no that's a different one yeah well he appointed Shelly Park to the tax Oklahoma Com- Tax Commission mm-hmm.
1: and then before that um the Secretary of Commerce stepped down and so he has um appointed Scott Mueller Uh, To take that position as Secretary of Commerce and Workforce Development.
0: Hmm. There we go, Secretary of Commerce and Workforce Development. What's funny is I'm looking on the governor's website, all the like press releases to try to get some of these names, and they release a lot of press releases, right, for this purpose to like let people know. And so, like on February 25th, there's one, two, three, four, five five press releases that day. It's not every day that he puts something out, but that was a very busy day, a busy week. Oh, and he also appointed uh, Jennifer Grigsby to the cabinet uh, as secretary of economic administration. That's what I'm thinking of. And it's funny to me because I have a friend named Ginny Grigsby who is not at all the same person. Uh, and so everyone like commented on my friend Ginny Grigsby's Facebook page and said, what's the deal? And she was like, I was shocked to, under, to find out that I was a Republican. <laughs> and uh, as someone who is a pretty outspoken Democrat, just oh, thought like that was a somewhat unique name like if there was another Bailey Perkins that got appointed by the governor, we would all think it was you. And then you would also be shocked that it was not. So.
1: Sure. Well, and I do want to make a correction about Susan Winchester. She was um, a speaker pro tempore in the house of representatives during her time um, when she was elected to the Oklahoma house. And she is serving now as the secretary of licensing and regulation. So she'll oversee um, more than 80 state agencies as an integral part of Governor Stitt's goal to deliver taxpayers more for their money.
0: Interesting. Is, is that a new position? I believe so. So that's- I
1: haven't heard of anyone serving that role. And so Governor Stitt has really taken flexibility in creating uh, different positions that he sees fit within his cabinet. So- than the, tr- the traditional positions that we we'll normally see like secretary of education or secretary of agriculture. But I mean, he's added things like a COO of the state mm-hmm. and now a secretary of licensing and regulation and to, to implement different initiatives he wants to see.
0: What's interesting about that to me when I first read that is I, my first thought was, don't we have a um, labor commissioner that does that already? I haven't looked in to see if the Department of Labor is one of the state agencies that would fall under this cabinet position, but because we elect people like that, it seems like there's a potential conflict of interest. I'd be curious to see how Labor Commissioner Leslie Osborne feels about this and what, what that relationship is like. It may be something where they work side by side or, or it's a division of labor, a division of labor of labor um, in a way that makes sense that I'm just not aware of but that's, that's very interesting. I mean, if he, cause he appointed someone that was supposed to like kind of oversee the auditor's office too, I thought, and I was like, but we, we elect the auditor to do that. And so I don't know if we are just creating new levels of bureaucracy and administration that are somewhat blur the lines of our, uh, of like our checks and balances in our government. I don't really
2: know.
1: Well, Andy, I'd say one of the differences is that with the elected positions, they don't answer to the governor nor the executive, right? Right. Right. So they're able to uh, work independently based on the parameters set in state law and statute, right? And so maybe these positions are ways for Governor Stitt to tackle issues in the ways that he wants to see them done through the extension of his power in his cabinet sees. And so um, to your point, I'll be interested to see what the intersections are between um, our elected positions in the state and the relationships that they'll have with uh, the secretary and the work that they're able to accomplish.
0: Yeah. Because so Oklahoma, as I'm sure most of our listeners know, but to recap, because this will come up next year, we elect, I think it's seven, uh, seven statewide elected offices. There's the labor commissioner, there's the insurance commissioner, the state auditor and inspector general. It's the same position, the
1: attorney general,
0: attorney general the governor and the lieutenant governor, right? That's mm-hmm. six. Am I missing one? And all in each I'm of to the- gonna,
1: I'm going to look on the OESC app because that mm-hmm. information is there.
0: There you go. So all of these things are statewide elected, um, seats, and as Bailey just said, they are oh, in- The
1: state treasurer is the one that you're missing. Oh, seeing. yeah, state treasurer, right. Yes. Who in the, that- oh, and the superintendent of public instruction. Oh, and the so superintendent. Have-
0: yeah. So these are <laughs> this is a big deal, right? And I guess the appointment of this new person that you know we were uh, thinking might be over the labor department is not unlike Governor Stitt having a secretary of education who is different than the state elected state superintendent of education joy hoffmeister right and so i would imagine those roles serve as kind of a liaison to those departments um but it does seem like because he has added so many cabinet seats to oversee agencies that already have someone that we elect to oversee them it seems like uh the governor is just trying to kind of spread his umbrella i don't know i don't honestly don't know if it's good bad indifferent or whatever but I would wager that most voters don't realize that that's happening and these people are being paid by the state. Like this is usually what it comes down to, right? For most voters is like, why are you paying two people to do the same job?
1: Well, one silver line that I see is uh, the appointment of of two women to the cabinet. So I believe that now makes at least three women who serve on his cabinet because the secretary of agriculture is Blaine Arthur. And so um, that makes at least three women that serve on the cabinet that aren't elected positions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, You said OESC app earlier. Did you mean the O-A-E-C app?
1: Yes. Okay. Long acronym. So yes, okay. I meant O-A-E-C, O-A-E-C app.
0: Yeah. Yes. The Oklahoma Association of. Um,
1: Electric Cooperative.
0: Yeah. Well, but you said OESC and that reminded me, that's actually why I ask story that also came out this week from oe SC, the Oklahoma Employment Security Commission that handles unemployment claims. They announced the other day that they have paid out uh, $4.4 billion in claims in the last year. So that's since last March. To put that in perspective, in the 10 years prior to that, um, they only paid out a little over or right around $3 billion, right? So this is, this is we paid out more. A billion dollars more in one year than we had in the previous ten years combined, which I think speaks to the severity of the economic uh, impact of COVID in our state. Now, a lot of those claims are not coming. That most of that is not coming from state dollars. That is coming from federal assistance, right? That flowed through OESC, um, and and in addition to what the federal extra. Um, that they were paying for some of that stuff, but that's still like that's a lot of money, um, and they also it you know reminds us of the in the early days of the pandemic uh, last summer. OESC was behind the eight ball. They had an antiquated computer system. They may still do it, um, and they were way behind on being able to um, to follow through some of these claims, and so they had this. Huge mountain to climb, and to hear exactly how big that mountain was, I think was a a startling number.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's just an indicator of how the economic downturn will still impact communities. Even though we're seeing progress in COVID cases decline, it's still going to take a while for the economy to um, restore. Right. Back to where it was for fewer people to need unemployment benefits, for um, people to be able to secure work again at better wages. Right. And so it's going to take some time for the economy to 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 get back where it needs to be. And that's one thing that we have to keep in mind Uh, at the federal level the unemployment benefits that are given extra by the federal government on top of what's given in state benefits uh, is set to expire on March 15th. What? And so Congress is, you know, ha- is on a time crunch to pass the latest version of the uh, coronavirus relief legislation known as the American rescue plan. That's the uh, version that has passed the House, and it passed with no Republican support, and it's now on the Senate side being considered, but they have until March 15th to get something signed into law. Otherwise, that additional benefit that Oklahomans were receiving, well, not even just Oklahomans, but um, Americans across the country who um, are facing a um, hard times or in between jobs due to the pandemic won't receive that that extra amount. And so um, the amount that they've proposed in this bill is going to be less than what was paid out pre in previous uh, coronavirus bills. Um, but nonetheless, it's still $300 is still significant for families who are trying to you'd stay above water during the economic downturn. And so I think that's something important for us to consider when we have lawmakers talking about, oh, budget projections are better. Maybe we should do tax cuts, or maybe we should do uh, this when we really need to be focused on how do we ensure that Oklahomans are sustained and protected as we get through um, this challenging time.
0: Yeah. Well, and and I think that high number of unemployment claims, right. And the amount that it was paid out um, doesn't not only demonstrates how severe the pandemic was, um, but also like, I don't know, bespeaks the fact that we might not have had the best approach in dealing with this. Um, Scott, you and I were talking about this the other day that does the fact that that Oklahoma had such massive unemployment and, um, And I think it was roughly on par, like as a percentage of the economy to other states. Um, But when we often compare things to, I don't know, Texas, right, who had a mask mandate and did these things while Oklahoma was open for business, do you think that the governor's decision to close later, reopen sooner, those things, do you think that helped or hurt the employment landscape in
2: Oklahoma? I mean, I, I don't know. I think it's really hard to, I think it's really hard to say, right? Like, um, you know, I don't know. I think on the one hand you could make a case that his decision to open up sooner. I mean, that it, that it hurt things because it forced businesses to try and make it work, right? Like (coughs) businesses couldn't apply for assistance, right? Like if everything is, everything is open and you can't apply for any kind of assistance for your business and then your business goes under, well, that didn't really help the economy, right? Now, there are lots of businesses who found ways to make it work, but they made it work with reduced staff, right? Um, but you can also of course make the case that like, if the, if the economy is open, more people are gonna have jobs. I think that's an overly simplistic way to look at it.
1: I don't know that there's,
2: I I don't know of data. I certainly haven't seen any data. I don't know, but like the idea that like our opening in June like we open things in June, and our state's fine. I think that's the story that we're trying that's that that we're trying that we're being told. But I don't know that it's, that it's that simple at all. Does that make sense?
1: And what does fine mean, right? How how do we define that?
2: I mean, there's that too, right? Like I think I think I think his 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 version of fine is that instead of a shortfall in the billions of dollars, um, we we have essentially a flat budget or even a little bit of a surplus, right? Like that's what I think his version of Fine is, but you know I thought have, have you guys talked about uh, Mayor Holt's comments this week uh, on uh, MSNBC? So Mayor Holt uh, uh, did an interview with Chris Hayes on MSNBC this week where he he basically was like any governor or mayor who says that they don't need this CARES Act money or that it's a blue state mismanaged, it's a blue state bailout. He was like that's just complete nonsense, and anybody who says differently is full of it. He's like if you're if you're an executive of mayor. Uh, an executive of a, of a state or a municipality, like I don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat, you need this money. Um, And I think that, you know, Oklahoma has had a large infusion of federal cash. um, And that's part of the reason why we're doing, you know, okay, whatever that means. Um, And I think that more money from, from the feds would help us get even closer. I will say again, it was a year ago, the leader Eccles came on this show and said, I think that it's gonna be I think that it's gonna be uh everything's gonna be okay because the feds are gonna step in and, and backfill whatever hole there is, which is going to happen. That's what the CARES Act is going to do. I would be curious what the leader thinks about the entirety of the Oklahoma Congressional delegation, which is made up entirely of members of his own party voting not to do that. Um, what his thoughts are on that. But Well, and I mean they would argue that I would think I don't put words in the
0: uh in their mouth, but I would I would say they would argue that we should do something, just not whatever the Democrats want to do, right? Like
1: <laughs> well, and and that's not even the argument that's being made. The argument is that the bill is full of things that don't address coronavirus, right? Right. What does it mean to address coronavirus? Because everything has been disrupted due to the nature of this pandemic, mm-hmm. and so. Does stimulus checks mean not specifically addressing coronavirus, even though there are a lot of people who have lost opportunity for, you know, additional hours at work or wages or being able to go in person or may have lost their job completely because the business they were working for had to close, right? Um, does monies to state and local municipalities mean not COVID relief, Right. Or does money for nutrition programs mean not COVID? So it's 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 confusing on what is or isn't considered direct support to combat COVID, when we know that helping people get back on their feet is one of the best ways to ensure that we're able to recover quickly from this economic downturn after the COVID uh, pandemic subsides. Right. So.
0: And there's a good portion of this American Rescue Plan that would be paid out relatively soon, right? So either in stimulus payments, um, money going towards vaccine distribution, production and distribution, and a few other components that like they would be essentially like as soon as it passes, these things are moving into action, which is different than some of the previous COVID relief packages where some of the money hasn't come out yet and won't even be distributed for like two years. and so as always with politics, there is some circular reasoning where like, oh, we shouldn't do this because it's not related. Even though we voted to do something else, you know, four months ago, they won't be paid out for two years when presumably we'll be past the pandemic. Right. And so it's, it's, uh it's whatever is politically expedient, I think for the person speaking before the microphone is what, uh, is what typically uh, we see them say.
1: Well, and one thing I wanted to connect with what Scott was saying Our municipal leaders are able to speak to the benefits of this infusion of funds to them because it gives them the opportunity to be creative in making programs or initiatives to respond to what is needed within their community, right, to tailor it. So we're seeing interesting programs to combat, for instance, evictions, Right mm-hmm. at the county level and at the state level. I mean, I, I'm not, not the state level, I'm sorry, the county level and the city level for the city of Oklahoma City, right? We've seen programs that are helping to ensure that people don't go without a safe place to quarantine to, right? During a pandemic. And so um, without those funds, it keeps local governments from being able to do the things that they need to do to, to keep people safe and to invest in their public health infrastructure, because that's another thing as well. Uh, The city of Oklahoma City had a massive amount of masks that they were distributing to local organizations and entities to ensure that um, masks were plentiful and that they could be distributed out throughout uh, communities in the area. And so um, my interpretation of COVID relief is addressing all of the things that have been disrupted by COVID. So I think that the bill is doing just that and getting direct support immediately into the hands of individual Americans, but also directly to local and state governments who can create uh, tailored responses.
0: Yeah, I, I think, you know, at least for me, like this whole deal and these debates have presented some interesting opportunities to assess what we value or what I value. I'll talk about me, right? Like you start thinking about all the industries that have suffered, right? From restaurants and bars to airlines and um, hair cut things and, um, you know, the cruise industry. I'm not a big cruise line person. Never been on a cruise. Don't really have a desire to. And, and, you know, people start – then, uh, well, having these conversations out loud, I guess in public of like, should we bail out the cruise lines? Are they necessary to human development? And, it's, and it makes me think of the death panels, right? That they would be rationing care and they would have a panel of people de- determining if you receive life-sustaining care or if you die. They kept branding this. The opponents to the healthcare reform bill were calling them death panels. And that's essentially what, I guess what Twitter has become where we, we can all cast our votes on, What types of jobs does this world really need? What's essential? What's extraneous? And we're going to have a thumbs up or thumbs down vote on whether or not you get a bailout. And if you thus like lose your entire career and and whatever happens after that.
1: And that's the thing is with the American Rescue Plan, it expands the PPP program and who has access to it. One of the biggest complaints um, in the design is that it prevented independent contractors and sole proprietors from being able to access those funds. And a lot of small businesses are designed that way and particularly a lot of minority owned businesses are designed that way. So they weren't able to take advantage of it. And so now we have um, an expanded program that's not gonna pick winners and losers of which industry is more important than the other. It's how do we ensure that people have what they need to stay afloat until we can get to a place of, I mean, I hate this term, but I don't know what else to say to describe it, but get to a place of normalcy, right? And so I guess that's the the part of being in a democratic society and being on social media, to your point, that everybody gets to have an opinion about what is or isn't important. But I'm just grateful that the way that this bill is designed, it doesn't pick and choose winners and losers and who can access um, relief and support, whether it's businesses or it's individuals in need. Amen to that.
0: Before we wrap up, I wanted to just touch on one other news bit this week, because it's a theme that we talk about in a couple of ways. One uh, it's about this fight for managed care or against managed care for Medicaid. And there was a, uh, a call um, the Tulsa regional chamber had their Friday zoom call and had Speaker McCall and M- Minority Leader Emily Virgin and then you know, uh, Pro Tem Treat and Minority Leader Kay Floyd uh, all on the call. So the four leadership of the legislature from both parties. And McCall acknowledged that while managed care has historically not been the preferred approach, uh, he said, and I think the great majority of members still feel that way, but we'll continue to see how it plays out. And that he said, you know, even though the legislature has a supermajority in both chambers that wants a different policy, it's likely to stand. Which is an interesting comment considering they have been so vocal about this. There have been bills filed to halt it, to stop it, to turn it around, uh, and and then here you've got the speaker of the house being like, "I mean, none of us like it, but we'll probably just let it stay."
2: None like, of us like it. We could stop it, but we just we just probably won't honestly like we just you know we got other stuff to do like we got to make sure that the oklahoma legislature can declare any federal law executive order unconstitutional we got to make sure that we can you know nullify federal directives we got to make sure that anybody who says the word abortion has to go to jail um i mean we just got we got other priorities
0: and and. That was the interesting call, as it always is with any chamber. I think, and the the leaders, because also McCall mentioned that he's got a bill he's working on to change our tax structure, um, which we've I think we mentioned last week. That's a bill that would, from what he's indicated, would do away with the corporate income tax and potentially adjust the uh, individual income tax. And he, I think he. I think we all agree that we need some comprehensive tax reform in our state because we've like piecemealed it together and property tax does this and sales tax does this. And, and, you know, and that ends up causing government at different levels to starve one another out or compete with one another for funds. And it's a complicated system. Although I would argue maybe let's look at comprehensive reform first before we start cutting off pieces of it uh, because we don't want to, They want to cut off our nose to spite our face kind of
2: deal. Andy, you know what they say. There's never a bad time to cut taxes. I mean, I don't say that, but I I assume that... I assume somebody... I assume that you hear that at, you know, CPAC or the... I don't know, somewhere. I also hear that the great in
0: Cancun at
2: CPAC.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I was going to add that, like, we have to remember that decisions aren't always made from a lens of personal convictions and beliefs, but of political strategizing. And I think the example of, we don't like the managed care proposal, but we're going to let it through anyway, is an example of that larger political strategy. I mean, the governor has championed this as one of his top reforms. And and because we're engaging into an election season, I don't think it's useful from a political standpoint for one party to dominate the entire governmental structure and prevent wins in different ways that could jeopardize maintaining control of party structures, right? Um, We saw the same thing at the federal level. When Republicans controlled the executive branch and the Senate, you saw reluctance of leaders to speak out about whether or not the elections were fair and whether the 2020 presidential race was was that the, the, the elections were 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 fair, right? And so it was until like Two or three days ago that our U.S. Senator Jim Inhofe spoke and said that, yep, there wasn't any um, fraud in the election process and our elections are secure. Mind you, and that's months after (laughs) the public conversations and the false, uh, the smearing of states like Georgia and Pennsylvania and Michigan in their election processes. And, and Langford still up.
2: hasn't said it. Langford still hasn't said it.
1: Well, that he also has an election coming up, right? <laughs> Senator Inhofe does not, and so I think there's political strategy that comes into play. Um, that sadly, that that tipping point of doing the right thing versus the long term implications, right, has to be weighed out in the political space. Well, I'm not not necessarily has to be weighed out, but is. Weighed out in the political space. And I think that's an example of of how it's played out at the state level.
0: It's all a mess. It's all a mess. Well, friends, we've reached the end of another eventful episode and week. By the time we meet next week and reconvene for the next episode, we'll have passed another deadline in the state legislature where I guess next Thursday is the uh, deadline by which. Bills must pass off the floor of their chamber of origin. Uh, So we'll catch you up to date on what made it, what didn't. They've got, I think, record numbers of bills to hear almost every day um, on the floor and still, you know, in committees uh, of the opposite side. So uh, it'll be a busy week. Many, many late nights. I'm certain of it. Uh, And then we'll move on down the road. Bailey, thanks for being here.
1: Of course. Thank you, Andy.
0: Scott, thank you, sir.
2: Yes, sir. Wouldn't miss it. Sorry, I dropped off there for a few minutes.
0: No, you're fine. Listeners, thanks for being here as well. Thanks for not dropping off, though. You're better than Scott. And we'll uh, (laughs) we'll see you all next week. Remember, decisions are made by those who show up.